0: Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS Podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right, thanks, Alex. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Have I got a slight tension in my voice as I say that? (laughs) You
2: seem to be slightly um, protesting about the fact that you really are fine. You've you've got a bit of a week coming (laughs) up. absolutely
0: fine. I have a week. It's the Autumn Literary Festival season and I'm about to hop into my little car and drive from Ireland to the UK and then go to Manchester, Cheltenham, Cambridge and London to interview all sorts of people about all sorts of things.
2: Brilliant. So we will hear about that, will we, next week when you've been on your travels? Well,
0: yes, you may do. If you don't stop me. <laughs> well, we look forward to that. If I'm not sobbing from a service <laughs> station.
2: And see someone speed reading and well sobbing, <laughs> give her a wave and a thumbs up. Yeah. Tell her it'll all be fine. It will be fine. <laughs> I just must mention a lovely letter that we had from a listener who is also a very valued contributor to the TLS, I have to say, but not writing in that capacity, who was written from Stuttgart and um, been catching up with the podcast. was very kind about me mixing up two. Oh, last week's travel. disaster, you mean? Yes, all right, all right. <laughs> yes, that one. He was very kind about that. But then he reminded us he said, since you also asked about how to say lump it in German, I forgot that. We were, we were trying to work out how to say kind of like it or lump it, weren't you? He says, so you can say es schlucken, i.e. swallow it. And then he says, that's not that interesting. But if you want to say like it or lump it, which maybe we do, or something like sink or swim, you can say, okay, now excuse my German now, but I'll do my best. You can say frissvogel oder stirb, which means brilliantly eat bird or die so oh, it's quite harsh isn't it it is it's good it might not be what you want to say to your toddler if you were coaxing them to eat their peas or something but yeah it's really i like it it's very direct eat bird or die so, oder Sturm. yeah was that right lucy i think so i mean don't ask me i'm the one that gets all the german wrong but that was a lovely thing to hear so thank you very much to our dear listener and if any anyone else wants to write in and um tell us how to say things and possibly mispronounce them, then, you know, please do. But, Alex, save me from getting any more German wrong. What have we got on this week's show?
0: Well, look, Fris, Virgil, Erder, is something, eat, bird or die, something we would never say to our listeners. We would say, pull up a pew. Welcome, yes. we would say. <laughs> yes, that's true. So on this week's show, we get into the ring with Theo Zenu to discuss a fascinating history of Jewish boxers, and we also dive into the dressing-up box with the stars of the Bloomsbury set. But first, if you're a fan of boxing, you'll probably know plenty about the sport's most famous names, from Joe Louis and Rocky Marciano to Jax Johnson and Dempsey, but you might not have heard of Daniel Mendoza, a Sephardic Jew from Whitechapel who became the first Jewish champion of England. Jeff Jones's book, Stars and Scars, introduces us not only to Mendoza, but to a whole array of Jewish boxers who revolutionised the sport. Theo Zenu has reviewed the book in this week's TLS and joins us now. Hello, Theo. It's lovely to have you with us.
1: Hello, and thanks for having me.
0: You made the point that Jeff Jones's book is a bit like going a few rounds in the ring. I mean, less painful, obviously, but you can get punch drunk on all the information he gives you. That's because there's so much to tell in this story of the history of Jewish
1: boxing, isn't there? There is a whole lot of punches, and by the end of the book, you will be knocked out. But that's okay. It's part of the pleasure of reading such books. Essentially the premise is very simple. Jeff Jones is a connoisseur and he knows the boxing scene in London particularly well. And in the course of his research, you realize that over the last two, three hundred years, Jewish boxers have played a massive part in the boxing scene here in London. And as you said in your intro, the story starts with Daniel Mendoza in the mid-18th century. Mendoza is descended from Sephardic Jews who come from Portugal and Spain. And at the time, boxing was a very brutal and, and basic sport. It's not the sport we know today with the red gloves and all of that. It was fought on a makeshift ring made of wood. They didn't have gloves. It was extremely violent. And Mendoza was not a very big guy. He would be today considered more of a medium weight. And yet he became the most brilliant fighter of his era. Now, how did he do that? How did he defeat big guys? Because he used his IQ to do it. He essentially invented what's called now the sweet science of boxing, meaning, before him, you want to win a fight, just got to punch really hard and be really strong. But after him, even if you're a small guy, you can actually win if you use feints and you trick your enemy. If you sidestep when they try and punch you, meaning you move your legs, so you're constantly moving, you're a moving target. And Mendoza change the game of boxing, and he's known today as the father of the science of boxing, in other words, the father of modern boxing.
0: You said, though, that, you know, no red gloves, but no gloves at all, right? I mean, this was bare-knuckle boxing.
1: Bare-knuckle. It was a scrap. It really was. And Mm. rounds would go on until one of them would fall. Um, It wasn't codified in the way that it was today, but Mendoza played a major part in building up boxing into a professional sport, if you will. And that would be enough to make him a significant figure as a also, half of his story is that Mendoza was Jewish at the time of abhorrent anti-Semitism in England and most of Europe. And he became an icon for the Jewish community, much like you know, Muhammad Ali became an icon for African-Americans during the civil rights era.
2: Daniel Mendoza, did it much, much, much better than everybody else because he was Jewish, because he was also having to overcome all the prejudice and sort of hatred, frankly, that, uh, against Jewish people?
1: I think he did. He needed to be a champion because anything less would not have caught people's attention and would not have broken down those barriers of prejudice. But luckily, he was. And he wrote a book about the art of boxing, which became very successful. He founded an academy to teach the art of boxing. And he took under his wing a whole lot of young Jewish boxers. And this is where the story on Jewish boxing continues. It starts with Mendoza and the next generation which he trained, and so on and so forth.
0: You mentioned actually one of them in the piece, Samuel Elias, who is the guy who invented the
1: uppercut or
0: pioneered the use of the uppercut. Again, something even if you're not a boxing fan, you know that word, you know that idea of of that kind of punch, that it... Catches your opponent off guard and and sort of blindsides them, really. And that all came out of Daniel Mendoza's training, didn't it?
1: Exactly. Mendoza also was one of the first to pioneer what's called the jab. So it's usually if you're right handed, you will punch forward with your left hand in order to control your opponent and control the distance between you and your opponent. Mendoza pioneered this. And then one of his students, Samuel Elias, pioneered the. Uppercut, which is an upward punch, which usually lands on the jaw and can be very lethal. And you see it every day uh, in a boxing match today. If you, Tyson Fury, a, a big British fighter, will be fighting in a couple of weeks. You watch Tyson Fury fight, the things he does, you can trace them back to people like Mendoza and Elias. Whenever Tyson Fury is moving and very elusive, that's started with Mendoza, or if he throws an uppercut, that's with Elias and so on. So these figures were extremely significant in the history of the sport of boxing and in the history of Jewish culture as well because they helped show the general population that Jews were not weak or cowards, as they were decried at the times, but were fighters and would not accept anything less than emancipation.
0: Was that the prejudice of anti-Semitism at the time, that you could intimidate Jewish people because they weren't strong? Was that part of a stereotype, do you think?
1: Absolutely, because if you think of it, the anti-Semitism in the 18th century was really born of a Christian anti-Semitism that had been around for centuries before, in England and in, in Europe as well. In 1290, Edward I expelled all the Jews out of England, and they were only allowed to come back in 1656 by Oliver Cromwell. So, really, by the time Mendoza comes to the scene about a century later, there hasn't been Jews in England for a long time, and they're still seen as very alien. And they're seen as being cowardly, as being weak in the Christian mindset. They obviously had uh, betrayed Jesus. So, they're associated with everything negative that they could be associated with. And at the time, Jews were routinely abused and beaten in the streets. In fact, in the piece by a social reformer named Francis Plath at the time. And he says that you could treat Jews like dogs, basically. They were beaten up, insulted. And what Mendoza did is that he changed that. He changed his story. And he created his academy and Jews, not just boxers, but Jews' self-defense. And after that, Page tells us, you can't insult a Jew anymore unless he's an old guy and he's alone because you're going to get punched back. So he was a real important figure from a social point of view as well. How had he
0: come into boxing in the first place? And I was wondering about the kind of training route for him. I mean, did he train in a gym? Is it like that? I mean, were there gyms, boxing gyms and clubs? I've read that Jewish boys clubs were associated with some of the academies and gyms that did spring up.
1: There were a lot of clubs and gyms after Mendoza's day. But in his day, again, here we're talking when the 1760s, 1770s, 1780s, he learned to fight in the streets. He learned to fight when people insulted him or his family. As a teenager, he worked for a greengrocer who was Jewish that was constantly insulted by everyone else in the streets. And he used to pick up fights with everybody. And that, that's, that's how he learned to fight. And it's unclear how he first, made a transition to professional, so-called professional boxing at the time, but he learned in the street and used his mind. He basically realized that if he needed to defeat bigger people, it wasn't just enough to rely on his power, because he didn't have a enough power. So he generated it in other ways. And that really is still the foundation of the sport of boxing. And the fighters that are extremely successful, the Tyson Furies, they rely not just on power, but on technique, on being elusive, on timing, and Mendoza is the first one to have made that discovery, if you will, is like the Albert Einstein of modern <laughs> boxing. Yeah,
2: it's extraordinary that that all still comes directly from him, and that that occurred to him, basically as he was out in the streets, thinking, "I've got to use like as you said, I've got to use my mind here as well as my fists, and sort of apply them both equally."
1: Exactly, and he himself. Was obviously not a very well educated man, but he he went to Hebrew school, he could learn Hebrew, he had a bar mitzvah. And later on in his life, he wrote a memoir, which today you can find at the British Library. And historians consider it the very first sports autobiography, which today is obviously a very, very popular genre. But his memoirs would be the, the first recorded instance of that. So he was a pioneer as well as a celebrity athlete, not just. A gifted boxer, but somebody who uses their platform, a very popular term we hear a lot today. Well, he used this platform to advocate for Jewish emancipation in a sense. I mean, he called himself Mendoza, the Jew. There was no equivocation, was sometimes called the star of Israel. And that model that he set was picked up by a lot of those. Jewish boxers in London, not just Samuel Elias, who trained under him and was nicknamed the terrible Jew, but many others. You have someone like um, Harry Miesler, who in the 20th century competed for Great Britain in the Olympics in 1932. And he had a Star of David on his trunks, and a lot of them had stars of David on their trunks. They were not necessarily religious, but they were fighting for Jewish identity. It's interesting because, you
0: know, we don't necessarily associate boxing now, the stars of boxing now, with Jewish sportsmen. And I was wondering why you thought that was, why we just don't align the Jewish community and the history of boxing. Is it to do with the ascendancy of Irish, Italian, African American, and Black and Asian British boxers, do you think, in recent decades?
1: It's entirely that that there are really no major Jewish boxer fighting today. And I'm sorry if Jewish boxers are listening to me right now. I'm sure they're very good. But there is nobody who stopped billing. There is one fighter in the MMA, in the UFC, Nathan Levi, but that's about it. And there are a few reasons for that. The first one is Jewish professional boxing in London really starts to die out after the Second World War. Because by that point, the Jewish community starting to do better, starting to assimilate in England. They are moving out of East London, and like you said, you have a new wave of immigration who comes. And they also want to pick up boxing, because boxing really is not a sport of the middle class. It's not really even a sport of the working class. It's really a sport of indigenous, of people who have almost nothing. and. Nobody that grows up comfortably or that grows up in modern society really wants to become a boxer unless they have no other options. It's, it's a brutal sport.
0: Theo, are you a great watcher of boxing? And Lucy, are you? We've never spoken about it. I'm
2: not, no. I, I find it actually quite difficult to watch. I do find that the science of it and the footwork and the movement around it quite fascinating, but I can't really watch it because it's too, it's too much for me. I feel too bad for them in a very simplistic and nice. I just like watching people get hit.
0: Theo, what about you? Uh,
1: No, I'm I'm a big fan. That's where my interest in the sport and in the history of the sport comes from. And what I think is very interesting about boxing is once you're in the ring, everyone is equal. So to come to your question, Daniel Mendoza might have faced a hell of a lot of difficulty being a Jew in the 18th century. But the second he stepped into a ring against a Christian English fighter, it didn't matter whether he was Jewish or the other one was Christian, whether the other one had more rights or less rights. It was about who is going to be the better man. So, in that sense, boxing is a great equalizer. The best fighter always wins. And I think there is something very compelling about that. And that's why it's such a, always been a tool for marginalized and oppressed communities to stand out.
0: Yes, you make the point that it is, it's an outsider sport and Jews who themselves were at that point and at many points in history were outsiders and were made to feel like outsiders did gravitate towards it. I, I guess that still happens, as you say.
1: There's something else is after Jews started to integrate and gain better situations in England and in the West, The narrative flipped in part because Jews themselves in movies and TV shows started to depict themselves as geeky and intellectuals. I mean, Woody Allen, uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David have built their entire career out of playing a very traditional Jewish erotic type, right? The very opposite of the boxer. And today, I think that's what people have in, in mind, and that's why they wouldn't associate Jews with boxing, because of this enduring stereotype that comes from comedy. In the piece I start with an anecdote, there is a popular movie in the 80s called Airplane that came out. It was made by three Jewish filmmakers. And the opening scene is set in an uh, airplane, of course. And a stewardess is giving out books and magazines. And there is this old lady who looks very tired, and she says, uh, can I have something? Uh, I just want something light. I just want light reading. And the stewardess gives her a leaflet called Famous Jewish Sports Legends. The assumption <laughs> being, of course, that they all know no Jewish sports legends. Jews themselves are the ones sharing uh, this stereotype and this message.
2: Mm. But as you say, it wasn't not true at all.
1: There's absolutely tons of them. Yeah. Exactly. It would be true maybe from the 50s or 60s onwards, but before that, they all Tons of them, yes. And it's true in America as well. There were a lot of American Jewish boxers in the 19th and 20th centuries. I have to
0: say I'm old enough to have watched Airplane when
2: I was young. I feel like you couldn't tell most of the jokes that were in Airplane, could you? That one you can tell, Theo. Alex, (laughs) we didn't ask you whether you like boxing.
0: I love boxing, actually, and I appreciate that, that it's divisive because it is a very violent sport and it has huge risks. It brings enormous risks, but I actually love boxing and I love to watch it. I don't so much like the trash talking. I don't like all the hype. I dislike it, in fact, but I do like boxing. But I do have a small anecdote that's boxing adjacent from not my life, but my late father's life. He was a waiter and he spent part of the 60s working at Jack Eisau's restaurant, which is a Jewish restaurant in Brewer Street in Soho. had very, very famous customers who included Frank Sinatra and Orson awesome Welles and Sid Charisse and like anybody who was anybody at there. And one of the customers was a boxing promoter, Jewish boxing promoter called Jack Solomons and another very well-known name, boxing trainer, Angelo Dundee. And Solomon's put on the 1963 fight between Cassius Clay and Henry Cooper. And Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, obviously, later, and his entourage, Ettin Aisauz, while they trained. him. my dad served them. So that's how my dad met Muhammad Ali.
2: That is wonderful. Oh,
0: wow. <laughs> that's quite a good story, isn't it?
2: It's a wonderful story. And it imagine. actually
0: sent me down a rabbit hole of sort of looking this up. And I found a woman who had written a piece about this very thing her father who was called Jack Achilles was the chef and that, and there's a brilliant photograph of him pictured with Cassius Clay after having just cooked him my, my dad said he ate steak obviously you know because that's what boxers ate and a lot of eggs obviously uh, but he couldn't or you know he was trying to get his weight down for the fight so he couldn't always eat all of it and he sometimes used to chew it and spit it out oh gosh I know oh, wow. I know and did your dad say like that it was clear that he was a star oh god yes he said it was just absolutely amazing to be in his presence
2: yeah you do yeah. get the impression that anyone that came anywhere near him just went wow yeah
0: yeah so there we are. I think it's now that site is now Madam Jojo's, if, if that hasn't gone and now it's a Starbucks or something. But anyway, there we go. That is the story of Aisau's of restaurant in Brewer Street. And So you're dad. only two degrees away from Muhammad Ali. Pretty much. Uh, pretty <laughs> much. But uh, yes, really uh, absolutely fascinating. I mean, you. it sounds to me that you really recommend this
1: book, Theo. I recommend this book, and I also recommend another book from the same publisher called The Fighting Jew by Wynne Weldon, which is a biography of Daniel Mendoza.
0: I am going to going to come in here and recommend a, a novel by Anna Whitworm. It's from a few years ago, and it's called Boxer Handsome, and it's interesting because it's about a young boxer in contemporary London whose, I think his father is Irish, but his grandfather he has a jewish grandfather who has been a boxer and it's about the sort of you know all the kind of different roots and the heritages that sort of combine to make to make the boxing scene and the boxing scene in london as you said this is a book very specifically about london i mean a very different story if we were to look at the states wouldn't it be but it's fascinating it sounds in its specificity
1: absolutely and i think this is something for people to remember. There were- great Jewish boxes, but they became great British boxes and great British icons. You they transcended that, and some of them fought for under the banner of Britain in Olympic games and so on, and became champions of England. So it's it's a very uplifting story of individuals who break through barriers and come to represent a country that they trust, that spurned them, much like Ali did in America.
0: Theo, thank you so much for telling us all about it. We really appreciate it.
1: My great pleasure.
2: Still to come on the show,
0: how to pack for a weekend with Virginia Woolf. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week... Let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode.
2: back to the TLS podcast I'm Lucy Dallas now when Virginia Woolf writes an invitation to T.S. Eliot to come and visit and says in her letter bring no clothes what does that mean you may well ask this week Sophie Oliver unravels it for us in a piece about a book and an exhibition of the same name taking place near Charleston near Lewis which was the former home of Duncan Grant and Vanessa Bell Virginia Woolf's sister So we're delighted that Sophie can join us today to talk us through Bloomsbury clothes and the lack of them and what they meant for each other. Sophie, many thanks for joining us. Hello. Hi. So can you tell us what did Britain No Clothes mean, really, when she said that to T.S. Eliot? especially of all the people you would say it to?
0: (laughs) It's a horrible (laughs) idea. He (laughs) always looks the same, doesn't he? He, He just looks like a bank clerk because, you know, he is one.
3: Yes. Um, I'm not sure what his sartorial response was, actually. But what she meant was bring no formal clothes. She was saying that, you know, she and Leonard Wolf don't bother to dress um, in a formal way. Um, they don't get dressed for dinner, for example. So Tom shouldn't either. It was an invitation for them to kind of be informal with one another. Um, and it was in a way a kind of language, actually, a way of of, of sort of expressing, um, a way of behaving that Wolf had been... Um, experimenting with, along with other members of the Bloomsbury Group, since they kind of tried to shrug off their Victorian heritage, really, since leaving home. And in the case of Vanessa and Virginia, trying to sort of experiment with new ways of living that often involved new ways of dressing. Um, sometimes even new ways of dressing could kind of help them behave in, in different ways. Um, if you think about what they might have been wearing when they lived at, at you know, in their father's house, there would have been uh, corsets, so you know, cinched in waists quite kind of stiff fabric often you know layers and it was really kind of getting away from those sorts of strictures and restrictions and trying to be more free in their bodies which might also enable and express kind of free ways of behaving and 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 interacting with other people
0: I have to say there is nothing more terrifying than posh people telling you it doesn't matter what you wear you just be (laughs) it would have sent me had I been T.S. Eliot into a complete spin and I'd probably have had to take about 20 outfits. But I suppose that's not really
3: what they meant, was it? One thing I learned from reading Charlie Porter's book is that they didn't actually have that many outfits. You know, it was, we think today about, you know, how many things are in our in our closets often. Um, and they had a much more limited and kind of reduced number of, of, of outfits. So I don't know how many kind of informal things they had versus formal things, but um, they had less to choose from, certainly.
2: It's a real signifier, isn't it? If you say bring no clothes, that means we're not doing the country house thing where you go up before dinner and you dress for dinner and it comes, you know, and it's very codified socially and sartorially, I suppose. It's just, it's basically saying we're not going to do that. This is not what we do. That was still quite radical, wasn't it? Well, that was in 1920.
3: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It was trying to say we're not going to do that we're, we're going to do this other thing as well you know that we ha- we're we going to have these less formal relationships between us and um, this is the argument of, of Porter's book essentially and he's not so much interested in kind of social traditions and, and things like that but actually kind of erotics and, and love and who is allowed to love one another you know the book is very much um, more so than the exhibition the book is very much about about love um, and about the freedom to love who you want and he suggests that we can read these people's clothes to sort of understand more about those impulses and desires that they wanted to be able to express
2: Mm. because you say at one point that Duncan Grant certainly of of all of them took bring their clothes pretty literally quite often
3: very often naked in these photos (laughs) (laughs) so that's one way of dealing with what to wear Right, exactly. Looking very comfortable. I mean, of course, these photographs are staged, you know, and they were playing. Porter is is very interested in the place of the camera, actually, in their lives. There aren't very many photographs until a certain point. And then there are lots of photographs and they're really kind of taking photographs of each other and playing around with these kind of new identities and new ways of behaving. And um, so there are lots of there's lots of documentation of of Duncan Grant not wearing very much and sort of sitting very idly and like he's just, you know, warm and, and happy in his natural self. Mm-hmm. I mean the South Downs is not is often not very
0: warm so we, we imagine it's at particular points of the year but it's also, you know, that idea of the Victorian clothes and particularly when it is dressing for dinner and that kind of formality we obviously think of it as a form of display or displaying your wealth and taste also a way of keeping the body covered and at arm's length but I suppose it's in some ways those very formal clothes are a protection of sorts. They are signalling intentions and they are creating distance between people that can be quite useful. And this, in a way, this is freeing, but it's also quite exposing, I would have thought, particularly if you're someone a bit socially ill at ease, like, for example, T.S. Eliot.
3: Yes, and Wolf was too, actually. You know, Wolf had enormous ambivalence about clothes, although Porter is keen to stress how she dressed in order to feel this freedom that I'm talking about. She was particularly ambivalent about fashion, I suppose, and the way that sort of uh, is exposing, um, exposing of, you know, whether you're sort of um, the right kind of person, for instance. So there's lots of ambivalence here too. There are figures in the book and in the exhibition who who don't dress to feel free. In fact, you know, someone like Maynard Keynes is, is explored and the way that he wears a suit. Um, in order to sort of partake in and feel part of a very kind of formal language of of power, of kind of male white privilege, you know, as as an economist and someone who's sort of very displayed on the world stage. So he's kind of saying, I'm the grown-up here. Yes, although then Porter does this very interesting thing of them reading the little clues for kind of a sign of him not being such a grown-up. I mean, there's one pictures of uh, documents from his archive in the book Keynes' archive, with this sort of code that people have not cracked yet, actually, but is thought to be a kind of notation of all the people that he's had sex with. So this kind of really quite, uh, you know, he's enjoying himself. And then there's a a sort of a buttoned up image, uh, you know, a more kind of formal and sort of grown up image, as you say, in the suit. But Porter likes to read photographs of him where he's, for instance, kind of quite insists quite a lot on sticking his kind of crutch out. That's not less subtle. (laughs) so that's that's porter's kind of a little sign that he reads as 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 there being something kind of less adult less you know more more playful going on
2: mm. and as you say a lot of it was bound up with gender and homosexuality wasn't it they were trying to sort of escape the restrictions around them and also maybe show that that they were trying to escape those restrictions by the very clothes they wore
3: yeah there's an important distinction there i think too an interesting one which is sometimes kind of an expression of feeling that you don't fit within the sort of official um, lines of of gender or sexuality, for instance. So although Porter usually kind of concentrates on, on the sort of original figures of Bloomsbury, at one point he does look at photographs of Carrington, who he thinks, didn't think of herself as either um, male or female and kind of would be nowadays potentially a, a non-binary person. That's his interpretation. And so he he reads her clothes as kind of expressing that um, non-conformity to the gender binary. And then there are other moments where it's actually about kind of not just expressing but it's about kind of shaping a particular behavior about actually allowing it so there's this kind of tension between expressing something pre-existing and then also sort of actually enabling something to happen For example, there are these, you know, photographs of of Wolf sort of larking around in a way that you don't often think of Virginia Woolf doing. Where clothes, because they were freer, because there was more room in them, because they weren't kind of constricting, you know, she's able to move, is his argument. And that's, with it, brings these kind of other ways of behaving, that they're made possible by clothes, not just kind of communicated by clothes. Again, it seems
0: that there even seems to be a sort of touch of ambivalence about that too, or ambiguity, the, the way that you describe it, that she would favour these sort of long line cardigans and skirts and the rest of it, which, of course, would give you a great deal more freedom to to move around. But it is also a way of a, a sort of shapelessness that's a way of kind of disguising your own ambivalence towards your body, because they were all clearly aware that there, there were bodies beneath these
3: clothes. Yes. And Wolf never really solved that. There's a line in an essay of hers where she she talks about this kind of this thing that she hasn't quite solved this idea of the body of her body. And I think there was always an ambivalence around that for her. And yet she thought that clothes were, you know, they were ways of thinking. So she had this notion of frock consciousness, which was about um, when you're dressed. You think in a particular way. You 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 interact with the world in a particular way. You know clothes are conditioning the way that we are, that we that we be in the world. Um, this was what she she thought of as frock consciousness, and yet that still is a kind of is about clothes as an interface rather than the body beneath. I think you're right that there are sort of some deep-seated ambivalences about bodies that aren't quite solved, except in in the case of of Duncan Grant. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I, I thought was so
0: interesting about it, and thinking about their clothes and the way that they displayed or did not display themselves, was how interested they were in decoration. You know, how it's what we associate with Charleston, isn't it? The very intricate homespun sort of Omega workshop decoration. You know, it's all kind of free art in a way, you know, just things that you would paint yourself. And I'm always trying to replicate it in my house. It never works. But, you know, there was this idea that things had to be beautiful, that you should make your surroundings beautiful and touched by your own art. But there's a kind of difference between
3: that and and the person. I think in some cases, they were actually of a piece, you know, I'm thinking of Vanessa Bell, who made a lot of her own clothes, as well as all of the work that she did on decorating Charleston and the Omega workshops run by Roger Fry. So I I think there's a sort of, you know, the self as an object to to be beautified is part of their philosophy, actually, in some cases, there are wonderful photos of her in these kind of slapdash clothes that she'd made that sort of really have that fresh, free kind of philosophy that was behind omega workshops and behind behind charleston as well a sort of slightly unfinished uh roger fry even kind of connected it to a sort of you know what we would call now a kind of primitivism a sort of that it's there's something uncivilized about it in 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 those terms you know that it was associated with other with other cultures that there was this other way of of living that could be accessed if we only kind of reject some of the, our formal training and those sorts of things
2: mm. And in terms of the actual clothes, as you said, the actual clothes they were wearing, you said there's not many left, are there? There's not many actual examples of of what they wore. So, what what is there at the exhibition to fill in the gaps if we can't really see much of what they were wearing?
3: Yeah, I think Porter and Charleston, and it's worth saying, actually, that this exhibition is is a new space. So um, we don't see these Bloomsbury responses to clothes in the context of Charleston. It's at um, a new gallery. Oh, sorry.
2: Yes, it's not in Charleston. It's not in the house, is it? Yeah,
3: It's in um, a new space in Lewis in this reclaimed kind of 30s building um, in the new gallery spaces there. So um, there is really an opportunity to kind of step away a little bit from what we know about Bloomsbury, which is so sort of, set and and kind of lives at Charleston in a way. And they do use that opportunity. So the absence of the clothes is a kind of opportunity for Porter to bring in other things. So he does display some of the things that that do exist. There are and um, there's a bag that Vanessa Bell and Virginia Wolf um embroidered together. There's some necklaces. Virginia Woolf's spectacles are there, which is very it's kind of poignant to see those, you know those glasses that she would have put on and taken off so many times every day. And then he shows, lots of paintings. So we get to see dress in paintings. Photographs um, are pinned up on the wall. So the photographs that are in the book and really kind of structure the book, actually, they're up there in the galleries. But then the main thing he does, and this kind of really brings Bloomsbury into the 21st century, is to show the work of contemporary designers who have been inspired, influenced by Bloomsbury. So Comte de Garçon, Dior, Burberry, S.S. Daly, Lots of designers who are responding particularly to the sort of dissident legacies of of Bloomsbury and this kind of queer sexuality, but also queer way of life that Porter is most interested in. So the designers have lent their clothes to the exhibition. So in terms of the sort of material objects, it's mainly those. And then they are displayed in and amongst uh, paintings. um, These other objects that I mentioned, smaller objects and photographs until you get to the penultimate room of the exhibition, and then there is a long case of Ottoline Morell's clothes, which have survived. So, a number of those are in a collection at the Fashion Museum in Bath, which is closed at the moment. So, they were able to lend all these.
0: And they're a different kettle of fish, aren't they? Her clothes.
3: Yes, although Porter tends to read them in the same sort of way. So, what you've got there are, um, you know, to look at them, they seem old fashioned, you know, they seem sort of uh, theatrical and these like big leg of mutton sleeves. Um, brocade or velvet is often used. A bit like Edith Sitwell, someone like that, there's a sort of self-conscious anti-fashion element to them, um, not wanting to, to be of the time and instead to kind of hark back to another time. But that in itself has a, is a form of freedom, you know, to be anti-fashion, I suppose, is to sort of create a space for yourself, to be something else that isn't constrained by contemporary expectations of how somebody would would dress. They're just wonderful to see, actually, because it's the moment where this thing that Porter is trying to do, which is to read clothes for attitudes, behaviours, feelings. In fact, he does that wonderfully well, actually, in the book with the photographs. But it's only really with Ottilie Morel's clothes that you you get to see those material qualities that he's using to to sort of piece together this this way of living that he likes so much about Bloomsbury. Mm.
2: And this is something that you're working on, isn't it? Your own book that you're working on is about the history of modernism in clothes. Is that
3: right? It is, yeah. So much like Porter does, I am taking items of clothing, you know, particular garments. It's focused on women, uh, women modernists. And I take a a garment per chapter and I use that garment. Either somebody wore it or they designed it or they were were photographed in it. Uh, They made it even sometimes. And I take those garments as a way to read that woman's life and their work and their contribution to modernism and what I'm really interested in is something that Wolf said about uh, about history and um the way that certain things are kind of written out of history and what she wanted was to capture the willow the wisps she called it those things that sort of aren't written down in books uh feelings moods memories uh, that often sort of escape official versions of history and clothes are such a brilliant way of accessing those things so I use those sorts of readings material readings to direct the things that I want to say about these women's lives about their work it's a way to access some real complexities too because of course as we've discussed not everybody felt sure about clothing and wolf for one you know was alive to lots of the possibilities and including feminist possibilities of clothes but of course there are all sorts of constraining aspects to close so they're a brilliant way to think about particular figures responses to modernity and uh, to experimenting with new ways of of writing and making art and living in these details that are often lost.
0: And who are some of the things and people that you're writing about?
3: So yeah, uh, Wolf is in there with Vanessa Bell. There is actually an existing garment which which isn't included in the in the Charleston exhibition, which is up in Edinburgh, which I'm looking at. Something that she made she made herself. Vanessa Bell bought in 1913 and then continued to sort of adapt and, and mend uh, over the years. Zora Neale Hurston, Gertrude Stein has these wonderful waistcoats in her archive um, that Alice Toklas made for her. Sonia Delaunay and her, the wonderful. Um, abstract kind of patchwork coats and swimming costumes and things that she made it's a mixture of, of you know things that do exist and then a bit like with Porter's exhibition things that don't exist anymore apart from in documentation
2: mm. it's a completely fascinating area and apart from anything else I have never heard the phrase frock consciousness before <laughs> it's
3: very good <laughs> it's very useful yeah it's in a diary she said you know she, she listed that she wanted to explore these different ways of thinking about consciousness and one was the party consciousness which is of course what she's sort of doing in mrs dalloway i suppose and then the frock consciousness which you know she also does a little bit in in mrs dalloway we all know it to be true don't we that what we wear does sort of influence how we're interacting with others and the, the the lens that we see the world with
2: Yeah, and sometimes if it's a big occasion you think hard about what you're gonna wear, or if it's a difficult occasion, or you know, sometimes you wear it like armour and sometimes you wear it because, as you say, so that you can run around. It's just a very good phrase, frock consciousness.
0: I was very struck in the piece by you end the piece by saying that one of the things that Charlie Porter writes about is that he was inspired to make his own clothing and taught himself, schooled himself in the ways of Bloomsbury's own. Rather
3: sometimes a bit hit and miss making of clothes. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's really following in Vanessa Bell's footsteps here. And the book is is personal, you know, as well as having this argument about Bloomsbury and a sort of philosophy of living, he's really using making clothes, teaching himself how to make, you know, t shirts. He starts quite basic and then actually by the end he's made a jacket, which is really quite imp- impressive, but deliberately sort of intuitive, not worried about, you know the established patterns or the ways of doing things, but sort of following his, his nose, I suppose, and you know his hands as he's making these things to make things that allow him to feel free. So it's, it's sort of an embodied book in that way that he's really thinking about his own experience as a, as a middle-aged uh, queer man. That, that's how he explains it. Someone who's going through bereavement and loss and sort of reassessing, I think, what, uh, what life is about and what, <laughs> what it all means and how he wants to live and he really sees the Bloomsbury figures as people that he that he he learns a lot from as you say that he's kind of bit schooled in how to live but also how to how to dress in a way that might make him feel the freedom that he sort of wants.
0: And the exhibition is on as you say it's not in Charleston but in in Lewis very
3: nearby until the beginning of next year I think. That's right it's a really fantastic opportunity actually for people who don't have you know can't get out to Charleston you know if you don't drive it's a bit difficult to get out there so it's lovely You just hop off the train lewis and it's right there Um, and it's a lovely reclaimed space they haven't built a new building and they've described it as a bit of an experiment actually in in sort of what a community uh, art gallery new art museum could be like and it seems like a really fitting first exhibition for that
2: well thank you so much for guiding us around it and and for raising our frock consciousness sophie thank you
3: (laughs) pleasure thanks for having me
0: have time for this week our thanks go to theo zenu and sophie
2: oliver and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy
0: we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye